Hebrews chapter 3 this morning is where we will spend most of our time, but we're going to flip around to a couple different places, so just make you aware of that as we start. Hebrews chapter 3, we did verses 1 through 6 last week. Um, I want to say a couple things just intro-wise, and then we'll read our text, which will be verses 7 through 19 this morning. Um, Just remember, we've said this as we've been walking through this letter to the Hebrews, this book that has been written that is useful for us even today, that the audience who he is writing to, or as some people would say, a she, is writing to, is they are Christians. The audience are Christians. These are Christians that this person is writing to. And so this message is for us as Christians. Um, This doesn't mean you can't get anything out of it if you're not a Christian, but just remember that, and it's important as we go through our particular text this morning. As we'll see as we start to look at it, also note that this is God's Word. This is God's Word. We'll see this again in a couple weeks. But this is God's Word. And the last thing, just to kind of have floating around in your mind, that the assurance of salvation is found in perseverance. The assurance of salvation is found in perseverance. All right, so with those things just floating around in your mind as we start, Hebrews chapter 3, we'll read verses 7 through 19. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, were, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Just in, in reading this passage and in looking at it uh, throughout this week, um, the, the one thing that came to mind is, man, this passage will preach. And so I've got a lot to say, and hopefully they are good things that the Lord can use and redeem. Um, I was thinking earlier, I feel like there's so much here that sometimes you feel like praying for like a really awful meal, you know, just like a juicy cheeseburger with bacon, and like it's just really disgusting and it's not healthy for you at all. I almost felt like praying like that, like I've got all of this stuff and I just hope that God can redeem it and make it useful for all of us this morning. So anyways, that's how I'm feeling, but hopefully God can do something this morning with this text because it is such a great passage. Now, I want us to start off in verse 7 and look and notice that it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, God says, this is the Holy Spirit. We've talked about how Jesus is God's Son. And we've talked about how Jesus is God. We've sort of just assumed that there is 
God, that there is God the Father. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and then there's also the Holy Spirit. So just in the first three chapters of Hebrews, we see clearly that God is in three persons and that the Holy Spirit is the one who speaks Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the one who has inspired men from of old to pin down these thoughts that are God's own words. This is what the Holy Spirit says. And this isn't just what the Holy Spirit has said, but look, this is what the Holy Spirit says. This is what he says as this writer is talking to his audience originally, and it's what the Holy Spirit says. It's what God says to us now. The Holy Spirit didn't just speak back originally when the Old Testament people wrote down what's in the Old Testament. It's not just what he said at the time whenever the New Testament authors wrote down what they have to say, it also still is living and active and speaking to us right now today. The Holy Spirit still says, this is God's word, and this is what he says. And so he quotes, and this is a quote from Psalm chapter 95, and I would um, just have us turn to Psalm chapter 95, if you would. The Psalms typically are in the middle of your Bible about Psalm chapter 95, And we'll see how this Psalm 95 actually unfolds a little bit. I just want us to take a glimpse here of where this quotation is coming from and how interesting it is, really the first six verses in this chapter, and then we actually get the quotation later on in verses 7 through 11. But how interesting it is. And um, I'd already printed the bulletins, but I, I almost pulled an audible and said, let's just do our call to worship from Psalm chapter 95, since it makes sense with our text this morning. But, but look at how this is a call to worship and how the audience is, they are God's people. This is a psalm for God's people. Psalm chapter 95, we'll read the whole psalm. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. A quick note. God has made everything. God is in control of everything. From the highest heights to the deepest depths, God has made it and God is in control of it. If it's wet, if it's dry, if it's high, if it's low, if it exists, God has made it and God is in control of it. And so from that, verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Did you notice there, verse 7? For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of his hand. There is a relationship here. He is speaking to God's people, just as in Hebrews chapter 3, he is talking to God's people. Christians in the New Testament, the Hebrew people, God's covenant people in the Old Testament, this is who this quotation is for, God's people. So there at the end of verse 7, and you'll see and recognize the quote from Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart 
and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay. If you are not familiar with the story of the Exodus, all you've got to do is turn to the second book of the Bible called Exodus and read it. Uh, and really, you only have to read the first, I don't know, 24 chapters, 30 chapters. There, Exodus can be a long book. And some of you, if you started a Bible reading plan um, at any time in your life, you probably maybe made it to the point of Exodus. And so hopefully you've read it before. The story of the Exodus is the highlight of the Old Testament. It comes early on in the Old Testament, but it is the highlight of God's redemptive purposes and what He has done, who He is for His people. In this world, He has shown Himself to be the Maker, the Creator, the One who is in control. And what He did in the Exodus was His people, who He had called, the people that He has begun to create through Abraham, they had been in Egypt, and they had become slaves. The Pharaoh became corrupt, and he said, these people are here, let's make them work. And so they were slaves in Egypt. They had no hope. They had no land. They had nobody going for them. They had nothing, but they had God. And so God, in his mercy, he said, you are my people, and I'm going to lead you back to the land that I promised to Abraham in the first place. Because that's what I said I was going to do, and so I'm going to do it. And he worked miracle after miracle. He put on plague after plague, and he showed himself to be worthy and above all the other gods. We read that in Psalm 95 here. He, he is the God above all other gods. He is the only true God, and he showed himself to be that through all of the plagues that he put on the people of Egypt. And it, what was amazing was, Many of those plagues didn't even affect the people of God. They just affected the Egyptians. I mean, that's, that's an amazing fact about the matter of what you read in the Exodus. And so God did all of these things. And then he led the people out and he brought them to the Red Sea. And he said, watch. And he parted the Red Sea. And it wasn't just a little lake, you know, a little puddle that they walked through. No, they walked through it as on dry ground. And there were walls of water on the sides as they're walking. I mean, you know, the, the story, the movie, The Ten Commandments, I think does a decent job of showing that there was a literal wall on the sides of the people as they walked through dry ground in what was the Red Sea. And God showed His power to be able to move that water away and for them to be able to escape from Egypt. And then the water came back down and swallowed up the Egyptian army. I mean, it's just, these are amazing things that the people of God were able to see clearly. They were able to see with their eyes all of these plagues, all of these miracles. And then God led them to Mount Sinai and he gave them the covenant. He said, you will be my people and I will be your God. And they said, yes, good, wonderful, great. They heard him speak. They heard him speak. They heard him audibly from the mountain. They saw his works. They heard from him. But not only that, as they were being moved through the wilderness, God revealed himself through a cloud by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night. God's presence was clear. This was, these were not natural occurrences that just happened to come around the Middle Eastern area in this strange time. These were specific things that could only have been attributed to a God who cared for a group of people. 
And he did these things, and he wasn't just with them in these past miracles, but day after day after day, God was with them, and they could see that God was with them. God's glory was all around, and it filled the tabernacle, and it showed them where to go. It reminded them of who God was, and they, after all of that, and not to mention the fact that God provided for them food. He created this manna. What is this stuff? I don't know. Frosted flakes. I had some this morning. They're pretty good. I think it's, that's what I'd like to imagine manna is like. It's like frosted flakes. Because um, I could live off cereal, and frosted flakes is a great cereal. So, you know. Um, but God provided every day, enough for that day. And then the next day, enough for that day. And then the next day, enough for that day. It just appeared out of nowhere. Where is this coming from? What is this stuff? And then he provided them quail. Like, he didn't just provide them frosted flakes, but then he gave them some meat, because some guys need meat. And so he provided them some meat. God provided day after day where they could see, where they could hear, where they could taste. They could touch God's provision for them. And so what did God's people do in response? They praised God, right? They said, God, you are so awesome and wonderful. No, they found everything wrong. They found something to complain about. They said, the weather isn't what we wanted. They said, I'm thirsty and I have nothing to drink. I don't have a water fountain 10 feet away from me that I can go to at any point in time. And I'm dying over here. God, you stink. I'm just going to go back to Egypt. That's what he said. That's what the people said. That's what almost all of the people said. After having seen all of those things, they said, God, what have you done for me lately? And you just got to think, God's sitting back thinking, what do you mean, what have I done for you lately? Look at what I've done, like, in the past year, yesterday, right now. You can see what I'm doing. You have benefited from my provision, from my protection. You've seen all of these negative things. You've seen all of these positive things towards you. And yet you still grumble and complain. And we find this particularly... In Numbers chapter 14, if you want to turn there, you can. I'll read a few verses from Numbers chapter 14. And it comes to this head. And this is just an example of how God's people rebelled against him. How they said, we don't care about you, God. What have you done for me lately? So Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Hey God, thanks for all you've done, but it's not what we wanted. being slaves is way better than being a free people who have seen God and who have God as their God, who can depend on this God who cares about them, who shows His power for them, for His own glory, for the benefit of His people. They said, no thanks. We'll just go back. We're literally going to walk backwards into filth and despair because that's what we had. In verse 13, 
there of Numbers chapter 14. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and now you go before them. And a pillar of cloud by day, and then a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give to them that He has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Why is Moses praying this prayer? Because God has just said, look, these people are grumbling and I'm tired of it. I've done everything I could. Parents, do you ever get to this point? I've done so much for you kids and all you do is grumble and complain. Like, what the world? I've given you a house to live in. I've given you all of these toys. I've given you opportunity to hang out with friends. I've given you a bike to ride. I've given you food to eat. I've taken you out to buy video games. I've played video games with you. I've let you go to school. I've given you everything that you need to survive and to be an awesome citizen of America. And yet you complain. Parents, are you ever with me on this one? Like you just think, oh my goodness. And sometimes we've got good kids who are kind and they understand what has been provided for them. But this is not what God had with his children. And so God said, like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with these people. Like, wh- 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 why did I do this? They're just a bunch of ingrates. Like, I'm just going to give up on these people. And Moses says, God, don't give up on these people because then everyone's going to say you weren't able to do what you said you were going to do. And God says, verse 20, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. So what has happened here? God has said, man, I'm tired of these people. I'm done with them. Moses said, God, don't do that because it wouldn't bring glory to your name among the nations. And so God says, okay, you're right. I am going to forgive these people because that is who I am. Because that's who Moses said God was. He says, you're, you're abounding in steadfast love. You're slow to anger. There's probably not a Sunday morning that's going to go by where I don't say something according to that. And it just happens to come in our own text this morning and what has been referenced in Hebrews chapter 3. But God he is a God who is, as we call him here at the vine, mercious. He is gracious and merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. He cares about his people. He is a God who loves us and who has done something to show his love toward us. This is who God is. And so Moses says, God, this is who you are. And God says, yes, you're right. That is who I am. So I'm going to act like it. And so he forgives the people so that they are still God's people. But what happens is, instead of being able to enter into God's rest, instead of being able to enter into all of God's blessings that he had promised to his people, 
God said, there is a consequence for this disobedience. There is a consequence for this unbelief. And so they weren't able to enter the promised land. But they were still God's people. Sometimes it's hard for me to continue to grasp how it is that people like these Israelites could still have God's favor on them in any capacity when they have sinned so greatly. I am a very judgmental person. You can ask anyone who's anywhere near close to me. I am a very judgmental person. And so it's easy for me to look at someone else and their faults and say, you don't deserve anything. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve that. You don't deserve this other thing. And so when I look at the Israelites here in Numbers chapter 14, and I hear them complaining after they were able to see, visibly, physically see all that God had done, when they were able to literally, audibly hear God's own voice, when they were able to continue to taste with their mouth, to touch with their hands God's provision day after day, and yet they still complained, I'm thinking from my perspective, from my judgmental nature, these people don't deserve anything. Just go ahead and open up a hole in the ground and swallow them like you did with all those other people. But God is not like me. And that's what's so great about God is He is gracious and merciful. And so when I think about myself, when you think about yourself and you get bogged down with the fact that you are a sinner, that I'm a sinner, that I constantly walk away from God, when I have been able to see and hear and to taste and to touch all of God's provision for me in my life, and yet I still sin, I still walk away from Him, I still say, no, thank you, God, you don't know what's best for me. God, you haven't provided it in the way that I want you to. What have you done for me lately, God? When I have this attitude, when I find myself, when I catch myself constantly saying these things, I have to recognize that I'm just like those people. I'm just like the Israelites. I'm no better than they are. In my own heart and in my mind, it is a constant battle to trust God as opposed to trusting anything and everything else. Because that's the dichotomy. That's the choice. Either you trust God or you trust in anything and everything else. You look at your bank account and you say, look at all that I have stored up for me. And now I can live comfortably. You look at your kids and say, look at how wonderful I've done. My kids have these great jobs and they're living these great lives. And look at, look at the work I've done to contribute to society. You say, look at... Look at the work that I do. Look at how I'm helping people out. Look at how I care for other people. Look at, look at all these things that I've done for other people, for society. And we put our trust in all of these other things that aren't bad things, but they're not God. And we put our hope and our trust in those things. And what happens is we begin to harden our heart. And that's where we come back to our text in Hebrews chapter 3. 
and where we can't go back and change the past. And I think that's why it's so interesting that this quote that we find in Psalm 95, written, I don't know, a thousand years before this text in Hebrews was written, and then again quoted for these people 2,000 years ago from us, that we are reading now, is still completely present and available and speaking to us. As the Holy Spirit says, as He continues to say to us right now, today, April 7, 2019, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Why do we have to be careful not to harden our hearts? Because that's our natural inclination. That's who we naturally are. We, we harden our hearts. When we aren't pursuing faithfulness, when we aren't pursuing God, we are pursuing something else. And in that pursuit of something else, our heart begins to become callous and cold and hard. And we are deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's just keep reading in our text in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so here's the admonition. Here's the encouragement. Here's the expectation in verse 12. Take care, brothers. Again, this is how chapter 3, verse 1 started. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And then he says again there in our text in verse 12. Take care, brothers. These are fellow believers, fellow Christians. This is who he is writing to. He says, take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Believers can begin to have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us astray, that leads us to fall away from the living God. This does not mean that you can lose your salvation, but it does mean like those people in the wilderness 4,000 years ago, 13... What it was 3,300 years ago, 3,400 years ago, that they could still be God's people, but they were not going to understand or receive God's blessings because they themselves had chosen to harden their own hearts. They'd seen God's miracles, they'd seen God's providence, and yet they said, this is not enough. What have you done for me lately? And so God says, I'm still going to be gracious and I'm going to be merciful and you're still going to be my people. But there are consequences to this disobedience. And the consequences is is a loss of fellowship. It's a loss of actions that are in step with the faith that we say we profess. We no longer become instruments by which God uses us to reach other people, to be an influence on other people, to show love toward others. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But what should we do instead? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice that he's not talking to individuals. He's talking to a group of people. He's talking to Christians generally. Maybe he had a specific audience that he is writing to, a group of, I don't know, 50 people or 100 people. But he's talking to them collectively as a group. 
And he's saying, you are God's people. And so encourage one another, exhort one another. You're here to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, as he says later on in chapter 10. And so this is what you should be doing because we need this encouragement from one another. Because naturally, the state of my heart is one that is prone to wonder. We're going to sing that in our next song. We are naturally prone to go away from God, to walk away from Him. And so I need the encouragement. I need, Stephen needs the encouragement of other believers to exhort me to walk away, to run away from the deceitfulness of sin, to not harden my heart, to look to Christ, as we talked about last week. What should we do positively? To consider Christ, consider Jesus, look to Him, remember what He has done, remember that He has paid it all, that all to Him we owe, and that is something that we couldn't do for ourselves, but He has provided and offered for us salvation. And so we consider Jesus, and we exhort one another, we encourage one another to consider Jesus. And we have to recognize that sin is deceitful, and that means that sin is powerful. We said this a while ago at the end of chapter 2, as we saw that the devil is real and that the devil has some level of power, that Jesus has more power than the devil, that the devil really only has the power that God has enabled him to have, that he really has no power in and of himself, that he really can't do anything that God doesn't let him do. You can see there in the book of Job. But that he is intently coming at all of us to deceive us. And that sin is deceitful. Now, we live in a society, we live in a culture here in Southwest Virginia in the Bible Belt that it's easy to look on the surface like a Christian because, well, I don't smoke and, and I don't drink and, and I don't party and I don't say curse words and, and, and I don't do all of these negative things. And we say, oh, well, well, not doing all those things makes me look good and it makes me a Christian. That's not, that's not anything close to what the Bible says. But, but this is the deceit. And so we, we picture, we have in our minds, we've been taught in some ways that all of these sins can be put under this category and that category and that other category. And so as long as I stay away from those things, then I'll be good with God. All the while not realizing that all of those sins are really an overflow of an unbelief in our heart. Sometimes you might drink, and you might drink because you're lonely. You might drink because you're in despair. You might drink because it's the only thing that makes you feel good. And in that, what you are saying is not anything other than, I can't trust God in this moment. I don't trust God in this moment. He is not enough for me. And that's what the people in Numbers said. They said, God is not enough for me. Let's, let's get a new leader that God has not appointed so that he can take us to where we want to go. Because where God's taken us so far is not good enough. We deceive ourselves here in thinking, 
that we can put all of these labels on all of these visible sins instead of looking underneath at the heart of the matter. Notice that he says, take care, brothers, lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Out of the heart flows what comes out of our mouth. Out of the heart flows the actions that we take. Our trust and our belief then flow into our obedience. And so what happens when we show disobedience, we're showing that we don't truly believe. When all of these actions take place that are against God, they're saying, I don't trust God. But sometimes we don't ever make that connection. Those two things are always separate in our minds because it's, easy, it's easier for us to think, well, I'm not doing that, and so, and so I'm okay. All the while, we're trusting in our own selves to get us through the day. And maybe we're not trusting something to drink. Maybe we're not trusting something that we ingest. Maybe we're not trusting other people. But we're never trusting God. And that's, that's the concern that I have for each of us in a culture like this where it's easy to say that we're a Christian, where it's easy to say that I don't do all these things and so I look like a Christian, our hearts all the while are deceiving us because sin is deceitful. Sin has a power in our society and in our own lives, in my life, in your life, to say, don't consider Christ. Don't consider what the root of the sin really is. Don't look to the heart of the matter, just look at the product. And so as long as it is up to me, as much as I can, I will endeavor to, to not make any of my applications in anything that I say to be, you have to do X, Y, and Z. At the end of any sermon, at the end of any teaching, at the end of any conversation, what we should be saying to one another is trust Christ. Trust Christ. Consider Jesus. Because if you tell someone to go do something to stop sinning, well, they might stop that sin, but their heart's not any different. If I tell myself, I've got to stop doing this, but I never actually look to Christ as the one who has paid it all, as the one who gives me the power to be able to do anything in this life as a Christian, then I have missed the most important half of that equation. Yes, I need to repent, which means I need to turn away from my sin. But if I don't actually turn to Christ, then all I've done is gone in a circle. But we usually don't see it as walking in a circle. We see it as, well, I'm not facing that exact same direction. Well, you're five degrees off, but you're still in that same general direction. You stop that sin, but your heart's going to put you on the path towards another sin that's close to it. We never actually turn the other way and say, look at Christ. Look at what he's done. Look at what I could not do and what he has done for me, freely offering me salvation and life abundantly, now and forevermore. Verse 13 again, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have our, our vision up here. 
on stage. And, and there's a reason we have it is because we want to make sure that we are connected in Christ, that we are considering Jesus together with one another as a community. Because that's who God's people are. We're a community of believers gathering together to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that you can look out for me. I can look out for you. We can each together point each other towards Christ, the only one who can actually do anything that is worthwhile for us. And we're on mission to share that message with other people, with each other, and with those who have not yet believed. This is why we exist as a church. This is why we gather together to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to say, how has sin in your life this week deceived you? How can I encourage you? How can I pray for you? How can we take this to the cross? At the cross, I surrender my life. I, I do owe all to Him. And so there is where my hope is found. That's what I'm going to. That, that's where I'm looking to. Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said. And he repeats what he, what he quoted in verses 7 and 8 again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Our last point here this morning. Read verses 18 and 19 again, and I want us to see clearly the relationship between obedience and belief, or between disobedience and unbelief. Verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of disobedience? No, he says because of unbelief. But there's a relationship between these two words. You can, but you don't have to. Look at Numbers chapter 20. And we have a picture of Moses. Now, we looked at Moses a little bit last week in verses 1 through 6, and we saw how faithful Moses was in God's house, how Moses was a trustworthy servant. But I want us to see this point clearly made for Moses himself, not to denigrate Moses, not to take away from how awesome and faithful Moses was for most all of his life, but to show us the relationship between unbelief and disobedience. Numbers chapter 20. Um, we'll start in verse 2. Now, there was no water for the congregation. We've seen that in, in Numbers chapter 14. All right, similar thing here. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, What? That would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Okay, didn't we just hear this in Numbers chapter 14? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have we, you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? 
It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Now that's important. Read that again. Verse 8, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and what did he do? He struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. All right, now, we could stop in the story here, and maybe it's easy for us to have missed it, even though I tried to point it out in verse 8. What was wrong with what happened here? Well, read verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What did he do? Well, God said, speak to the rock. Before, in Numbers chapter 14, he, he was instructed to, to strike the rock. But here in Numbers chapter 20, God wanted to work a different way. And he said, Moses, speak to the rock. So nothing physical is happening. All you're doing is using your voice, not because your voice has any particular power, but because I'm going to show my power, my glory through your words, through the words that I've given to you, and speak to it, and water's going to come out. And so what does Moses do? He doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes it like he did before. And so what is this disobedience called? Well, look again at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me. He doesn't say, look at how you've disobeyed. He says, you did not believe in me. Their disobedience followed from their unbelief. And what God cares about is the fact that they did not believe. They did not trust him. Moses and Aaron didn't trust God in that moment. And because of that, Moses and Aaron did not enter God's rest, just like the rest of the awful people of Israel didn't enter God's rest. Oh, except for Caleb and Joshua and the people under 20, but it's another part of the story. There is a relationship between unbelief and disobedience. On the flip side, there is a relationship between belief and obedience. Our obedience flows from our belief. What you believe in your heart will drive the words that you say and the actions that you take. And so the question for us this morning is whether or not we have an evil, unbelieving heart. For some in this room, you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that has never known Christ, that has never committed yourself to God. You don't have the Spirit in you because... You have not confessed your sins. You have not believed. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. He says in Romans chapter 10, Paul does. You've not done that. You've never believed in the first place. 
And so your actions are always going to speak disobedience because you don't have faith. They're always going to lead to something that might seem really good because we live in a culture where it's stuff that's really good makes us really seem like Christians. But you don't have faith and we miss Christ. And then there are some of us who have believed in Christ, who have committed ourselves to Him. And yet still there is a potential for us to have our hearts be hardened because sin has deceived us into thinking, well, if I just do these certain things, I'll have enough points to be okay with God. And we look at our actions as opposed to looking at our heart and how our hearts are easily deceived. How from our hearts, from a, from a pure heart and a clean conscience, our actions then flow into loving other people, into acting like Christians are supposed to act, into acting like God's people have been expected and intended to act. And so the question for each of us this morning, whether you're not saved, is will you believe? Will you allow God to change your heart, to give you a new heart? Will you believe? And if you are a Christian, will you continue to believe? Or will you be known by your rebellion? Will you be known by your disobedience because you haven't continued in that belief? Let's pray. God, we need your spirit to continue to speak to us. God, we are needy people. We need you. So God, would you show up in our hearts? Would you help us to believe? Help us in our unbelief. God, we need you to do this in our hearts, not just in our actions, not just to look good, but so that we truly are continuing to change, to be more and more like Christ. Help us every day. Help us today to consider Christ, to consider Jesus. God, would your spirit remind us would you use each of us here in this room together to exhort one another to consider Jesus? God, you've given us your spirit and you've given us other people. Help us not to go astray in our hearts. Help us not to go astray then in our actions. God, you can do this work. We pray that you would. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.